Hey, welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast, presented by Volkswagen. Whatever your definition of family is, there's an SUVW that suits it. I'm Joe Wolfon, and I'm joined, as always, remotely, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Cash, what's going on? I'm energized by that intro, man. You're, just, you're bringing a lot of energy today. <laughs> I mean, you got to like, kick it into like high gear coach- at 9.30 in the morning. Yeah, it's like you're coached by Mike Budenholzer, and you've only got like 24 minutes under your belt the last couple of games, so you've got a lot of energy for... Just save your bullets, man, because uh, <laughs> because we'll get there. But I think uh, today's episode is a good opportunity for us to just kind of bounce around the conference semifinals, because we've got four pretty compelling series going on. Now, I'd say only three of them are really competitive, uh, and the one that's been least competitive is Bucks Heat, which... Who could have predicted that? But, you know, that series is still obviously very interesting for myriad reasons. But I think maybe we won't talk about that one quite as much today since we have talked about it quite a bit already. And it may well be over after tonight. And one way or another, I think we're going to have a lot more Bucks talk coming in the next few days. So why don't we start in the Western Conference? Uh, just because those series got started a little bit later than the Eastern Conference series did, and we haven't talked about them quite as much. Which one do you want to start with, Cash? Lakers, Rockets, or Clippers, Nuggets? Uh, I mean, we can start with Clips, Nuggets, just because it's the most recent one in my mind. It happened last, the most recent game that was played in the playoffs. Um, okay, let's do that. So the Nuggets honestly probably should have won last night. I think they were the better team for you know, 40 to 45 minutes of that game. And they ultimately let it slip away in the fourth quarter. And it just turns into one of these games that it feels like a backbreaker. You know what I mean? Like the the inferior team that is maybe punching a little bit above its weight and they have the favored team on the ropes with a chance to go up in the series and they wind up losing. I, I don't think that that team can really recover from a loss like that as impressed as I've been with the Nuggets as well as they've played. And and I'm not saying they can't win another game in this series, but I think if they were going to have any hope of actually winning the series, then they really had to take that game three. And honestly, I thought, like I said, they were the better team. They certainly played harder than the Clippers for the majority of that game. And at the end of the day, they were just out talented. And I think, you know, that's, ultimately going to be the story of this series is like for whatever the Nuggets do, whether it's their game planning, you know, the fact that they play a little bit more like a team, I think, than the Clippers do at times. And, you know, it's just any measure of cohesion, grit, energy, whatever it happens to be, when it comes down to it and you're in a tight fourth quarter, it turns out having Paul George and Kawhi Leonard can be the difference maker. So, yeah. And, I mean, George was great in Game 3 on both ends. Kawhi was Kawhi. I mean, he's got – adds another kind of iconic moment to his to his list with the middle finger block on Jamal Murray, who, you know, all credit to him. He tried it. He went for it. Uh, but, yeah, no, I mean, to your point, I, I tweeted the same thing last night. Like, any – look, I'm sure that, uh, you know, there are examples that we're just not thinking of that, you know, the an inferior team has recovered and, and won a series despite dropping a game like this. But to me, it always just feels like – when the inferior team loses uh, a tiebreaker game in a series that they should have won, not just that they lose the tiebreaker game, okay, you can recover it, but when it's a game they they definitely feel they should have won and most of us feel they should have won, 
and they drop it to to go down in the series against the clearly superior team, for me, it's just always hard to envision that team winning the series after that. Uh, and I think this is a good example of that. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they've already got their last win of the season. I mean, they, look, Jokic was great. Um, Murray had a bad Murray game, you know, for as great as he was. And credit to Paul George, man. Like, PG had, had him in shackles all game. Yeah, yeah. George, uh, George locked him up. And, and Murray was good in game two of this series as well. But yeah, just George locked him up and uh, he forced it a little bit. You know, Michael Porter Jr., as is often the case, is a, a very much a story of peaks and valleys. And he'll have stretches in games where he looks like this guy could be like a budding star. And then he's got stretches in games where he's by far the worst player of the 10 on the court. And then there were so many moments too, you know, like that you can pick apart the day after Jokic I think was resting to start the fourth quarter and the Nuggets um, the Nuggets go on a nice little run and they go up seven and Doc Rivers calls a timeout and like to me that's a perfect opportunity if you're Michael Malone it's like okay you you won those Jokic minutes that's a boon that's a that's just icing on the cake you should not react to those as like oh we won these minutes without Jokic I can now steal an extra minute of rest because because yeah. Jokic up to that point had been the best player in that game, not just 100%. for the Nuggets in the game. And so I don't really understand the idea in the playoffs. You know, we've talked so much when we're criticizing Bud about how high your sense of urgency needs to be in the playoffs, and especially in this case for the Nuggets when they are clearly the inferior team. If you win those minutes to start the fourth, though, Jokic take a three possession lead, and now the Clippers are calling timeout. You've just gone him five or six minutes of real time rest. Get him back in there. Take advantage of the fact that you won those minutes without him by getting him back in there and instead you know Malone doesn't bring him back in and about a minute and a half later after an 8-0 Clippers run you know they're back down one he calls a timeout and brings him in again I'm not saying that's why they lost the game but it's just like little things like that that in a loss like that you can point to you know I think with less than three minutes left Jeremy Grant had two golden opportunities to score in what at the time was a one and a two possession game first Jokic found him and he, I think on a cut and he missed a floater. And then the very next possession after the Clippers score, Jokic finds him wide open, like put him on a platter for him in the corner and he bricked it. And, uh, you know, like it, it's just sequences like that or the, the, the Jokic substitution, like those things, maybe they don't tell the whole story of the game, but uh, in the situation the Nuggets are in, those are definitely ones that they're going to be thinking about. Yeah, with the substitution thing, I agree to an extent, but I also do think there's maybe a little bit of revisionist history there. And okay, so there were what? There were like eight and a half minutes left to go in the game at that point, I think. When Doc when Doc called the timeout? Yeah, I think yeah. so. And I think so Jokic ended up playing 38 minutes in this game. You could probably stretch him out to like 40 or beyond. But I think, you know, contrary to the stuff we talked about in terms of Giannis's minutes, Jokic really is a guy who you can see his effectiveness wane the longer he's on the floor. And I think if you're going to have him out there for, you know, an entire eight and a half minute stretch to close the game, there's a pretty decent chance that you're going to see him start to fade down the stretch. So I don't think it's like crazy to try and buy him a little bit more time on the bench. I do think if you're coming out of the timeout, then that might have been a good opportunity to plop him back in the game. But obviously the Clippers going on that 8-0 run makes the decision look a lot worse in retrospect. And I don't know if in a vacuum it's like totally indefensible. But like in that stretch, I mean, just like a perfect example of the peaks and valleys, you know, the roller coaster that you ride with Michael Porter Jr. is, I had some moments of real brilliance in this game, some 
timely offensive rebounds. Obviously, that spectacular dunk on Montrez Harrell, which was like maybe the dunk of the playoffs so far. And I thought there were moments where he actually played like some really solid team defense. And one of them was during that 8 0 Clippers run when the Nuggets put two on the ball and the Clippers, I can't remember actually who was initiating the possession, but he found Zubac on the roll and Porter Jr. beat him to the spot. Like he was in exactly the right place with that back end rotation, winds up stealing the ball and then headmanning a three on two transition break the other way. But he just gets tunnel vision. And instead of like looking to pass it off, he tries to go up for a layup, gets stripped going up for the layup. Clippers immediately push it back the other way and get a three. And that was the three that put them up by one. And they kind of didn't look back from that point on. There was another play where like he grabbed a big defensive rebound in traffic, but then immediately tried to put the ball behind his back, got his pocket picked by Montrez Harrell and then fouled Harrell to send him to the line. So I, I think, you know, the Nuggets are at a point where they just have to take the good with the bad with Porter. Like when we wrote about the series going in, I listed him as my X factor just because I think they need so much of what he brings. And they just kind of have to either live with the downside or find a way to try and mitigate it. And I think on the positive end, and this honestly like didn't have so much to do with them. I think it had more to do with the Clippers just like not doing a good enough job of really picking on him at the defensive end. But like the Clippers weren't really able to exploit him all that much. Like they didn't target him and try and get him switched on to like Kawhi and PG as much as the Jazz were doing with Donovan Mitchell. So I thought they they more than survived his minutes. Like they were a positive in his minutes on the floor and they're going to continue to need him going forward. I mean, look, that's, that's become a trend actually for the Nuggets is that they're a positive when Michael Porter's on the court. You can go back to about the middle of that Jazz Nuggets series and see that um, the trend started flipping. Now, I, I'm not going to say that he just like turned it around and became a solid defender overnight. I mean, he still has his issues. He still struggles with focus, it seems, on the defensive end. But he does have moments of brilliance even on that end. And he already looks like an improved defender if you you know compare what he is right now to just what he was a couple weeks ago in games one through three of the first round. And and yeah, you mentioned the, like, the on-off differential. I'd say go back and look maybe starting around game five, four or five of the first round until now. And he might be their top or second best on-off net guy. Like they're... You know, whether those numbers are maybe a little misleading right now in a small sample size, I don't know. But it definitely seems um, like, to your point, they do need, you know, every one of those minutes from him right now. And you just got to hope that you get more highs than lows. Well, they're not exposing him to starters as much, which I think has had a lot to do with it. I I do think, like, if I'm looking for things that um, give me optimism, but the Nuggets ability to continue to hang in this series and maybe win another game or more it's that the Clippers just don't have a great answer for Jokic and I continue to think that that Zubac is their best option because you know Jokic has just absolutely feasted when he's gone up against you know Montrez Harrell even Jamichael Green and you know Zubac actually like I, I think has had a really positive impact even though he only had eight points and three rebounds in the last game he, he, to me, was like by far their best option at center. And there have been times when he's played like perfect defense on Jokic in the post. And it really doesn't matter because Jokic ultimately can kind of just do what he wants. And and Jokic, and uh, sorry, Zubac winds up fouling out of this game. And I think the big thing for the Nuggets was like they weren't really able to take advantage of that. Like And Harrell, honestly, when he came in after Zubac fouled out, played really well. But, you know, you mentioned like the minutes that they kept Jokic on the bench. I actually think the bigger thing 
And I'm saying like, okay, well, maybe they just wanted to have him fresher down the stretch. But then use him. In, but in crunch time, and part of it was on him, honestly, because like mm-hmm. there, he like had a mismatch on Marcus Morris in the post and decided to pass out of it. A couple times he had what looked like pretty good looks at threes that he passed up. And he just sort of, I don't know if it was him losing his nerve or he just got passive. His instinct is to be a playmaker rather than a scorer. And those instincts ultimately took over when the Nuggets kind of needed him to be a scorer down the stretch. But that to me was the more damning thing, not necessarily that he was on the bench when the Clippers put a little run together, but the fact that the minutes that Mike Malone was ostensibly saving him for, he kind of disappeared a little bit. But on the whole, I do want to just shout out how well he's played in the last two games and how good he was in this one. I mean, he his passing was unbelievable. He made another one of those incredible like one-handed rebound to full court outlet passes to Jeremy Grant that hit him like right in stride yeah. for a transition dunk. And I-, I love watching just like how the Nuggets react to Jokic as well, because that's just like Jeremy Grant was closing out to the three-point line on that play. And he just like doesn't stop running, right? Like that's just a closeout that turns into a leak out because he knows exactly what Jokic is going to do. He had, Jokic had another pass when like he caught the ball in the short roll and Kawhi was like zoning up between Monty Morris and the dunker spot. And I think Gary Harris in the corner. And Jokic catches the ball in the short roll and looks Kawhi off and gets him lurching to the corner before he dimes up Morris in the dunker. Like, he shot the ball really well from three. Uh, His interior scoring touch has been amazing. He had some bad turnovers in this game, but aside from that, he was really, really good offensively. Yeah, I think the, the way game three unfolded with Jokic being the best player on the court until um, essentially until crunch time or until like mid-fourth quarter... To me, is like another example in the bigger picture of how you. It's very hard to even as great as Jokic is and as great as some bigs in this league are. It's just very hard to win if you don't have like absolute excellence from the from a wing spot from a, like a pull up shot creating type player. And uh, I mean that's just kind of the way of the game, and and the Clippers have that mm-hmm. like no other team does. And if it's a if they're in a close game against a team that has it in a guy like Jamal Murray, but it, it you know, it comes and goes, um, then they're probably going to win that game because they just have such an advantage in that area. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned Grant, like kind of missing some good looks down the stretch. I think he missed three pretty wide open threes in that fourth quarter and stuff like that's just a killer, you yeah. know, and there's not really anything that you can, there's no like adjustment to that. It's just <laughs> like, you have to knock down those shots and gonna make at least one of them (laughs) yeah um and and so i don't know i don't know if it's like a good sign that the nuggets like played so well and kind of had the clippers on the ropes or if it's a bad sign that like they could play that well and the clippers can kind of sleepwalk through the first 40 minutes of the game and still come away with the win and i'm leaning maybe a little bit more toward the latter you know the clippers also kind of won this game at the free throw line they got 26 attempts the nuggets only got 10 and some might carp about the officiating when they see that stat but the fact is the Clippers were second in the NBA in free throw rate during the regular season and the Nuggets were third worst. And the Clippers just have guys who are really good at attacking the basket and drawing contact and the Nuggets don't have a ton of rim protection. So to me, that is sort of inevitable. And for, you know, the Nuggets wings, they just weren't really finding their way inside as much. They're they're working inside out with Jokic in the middle, but um, it's not really the same thing as having... Uh, your guards and wings attack from the outside in. And 
Murray obviously just like wasn't really able to do that in this game. Not that that's really a huge part of his game anyway, but he's not a guy who really thrives on getting to the rim. And the fact that he couldn't create a ton of space for his jump shot in this game, again, credit to Paul George. Also kneecapped the Nuggets offense, I think, when they really needed it down the stretch. Yeah, overall, they like the Clippers aren't, they're not really doing a good job of dispelling the notion that they play with, you know, the proverbial switch. And they just think they can turn it on and off. And hey, to their credit, they've been able to do that all season and throughout the playoffs so far. We'll see whether they can do it against one of the Lakers or Rockets and then whoever they meet potentially in the finals. Yeah. Another thing I think the Nuggets defense has actually done a nice job of is limiting Kawhi. Jeremy Grant, I think, has been fantastic on the ball. But, you know, just like the Nuggets team defense, they're hard hedging to get the ball out of his hands uh, to protect their centers. And sometimes they're they're sending a third defender at him um, in the pick and roll, like middle pick and roll from the top. They're sending a third defender coming from the wing. So they're really crowding him on those pull-ups, like essentially with three guys on the ball. And they've really made an effort, I think, to turn him into more of a playmaker. And honestly, in that fourth quarter especially, he was up to the task. Like he made some really slick bounce passes to beat those Nuggets that, traps. That, that threaded pass he uh, dropped for... For Zubach on the pick and roll that ended in the huge Zubach and one. Yeah. So I think, you know, even though sometimes it takes him like a couple of quarters to sort of feel out the coverage and figure out how he's going to attack it, he usually strikes the right balance. And that was just a monstrous fourth quarter for him at both ends of the floor. I mean, you mentioned that middle finger block. You can say middle finger block and like it sounds impressive, but when you consider it, like Jamal Murray was going up to dunk the ball. Like he, th- that is like. Yeah the full force of his body trying to bring that ball down on the rim. And I, I, that kind of hand strength is unfathomable to me. (laughs) Like most normal humans, like their middle finger would snap off if they tried to do that. Yeah, no, it's insane. And, 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 you know, even to go back to PG, like you mentioned the, the fact that the nuggets on a team level defensively are actually doing a pretty solid job on Kawhi to bring in the third guy. Grant's been good. Um, they've had Millsap help in situations. Like this is why when we did our our preview of this series, written preview that we posted last week, I, I had Paul George as my X factor in the series because I, I said that even though the Nuggets maybe don't have like the individual options to stop Kawhi, they'll load up on him and they might be able to at least force the ball. They won't be able to stop him when he gets to the rim or when he gets, but they can at least maybe force the ball out of his hands and Paul George just has to play like up to his capabilities and this Mm -hmm. won't be a series and he's had a he's had one bad game in the series but through three games 24 points on 50 47 84 shooting and again that's you know it's not absurd those numbers are very PG-esque numbers but again that's all he has to do if Paul George just plays up to his capabilities and no better than that the Nuggets have literally zero chance to win this series (laughs) I think we might, before we do this again in the conference finals, we might have to like hammer out our definition of X-Factor. Because to me, I don't know that Paul George, as the second best player on the Clippers, X, and X probably the, thir- the third mean, best player X in factor, the series. X-Factor doesn't mean someone you've never, like, X-Factor doesn't have to be like an unknown. And to I me, know, to but me it, an X-Factor is like the swing the swing factor. Maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe I see X-Factor as more like the swing factor in a series. And okay, like I'd say, like maybe the best player in a series or the best player on a team, like Jokic and Kawhi, shouldn't be X factors in this series. But yeah, to me, it's like the swing guy in a series or the swing stat or the right. swing strategy. Yeah, no, I think of it as, and the reason that I don't 
you know, I, I don't cite stars necessarily as X factors in series because I think you have a baseline expectation of what those guys are going to bring. And maybe you have you watched, that- have you watched playoff P before? Because uh, there is no baseline. But like, uh, So maybe in that case, I, yeah, I, I can understand it because he played so poorly at stretches in that Maverick series, but I don't know. I guess I do tend to hew more toward whether it's a tactic or a role player, something that has, a high level of variance where which I think legitimately Paul George does in the playoffs and that mm-hmm. and that kind of was my point that like if he just gets back to being himself um especially from an efficiency standpoint and a shooting standpoint when the ball is forced out of Kawhi's hands then I just don't see any path forward for the Nuggets in this series right um last thing before we move on from this series I thought Lou Williams did a really good job fighting at the defensive end of the floor in this last game we talked about how the Clippers weren't really attacking MPJ the Nuggets could have done a better job maybe of attacking Lou Williams but they did try at a lot of points and he did a really good job of showing and recovering to stay out of switches and he winds up being a game high plus 20 in this game and if if the Nuggets can't like play him off the floor at the defensive end then they're gonna be in real trouble because he honestly maybe more than anybody on the Clippers is in a good position to exploit their pick and roll coverage yeah, man, the, the Clippers in general just have too many options for so many teams, you know, like, um, and that to me kind of feels like what we've watched through most of the first three games. Mm-hmm. Um, even Like on a whole last night, it just felt like it felt like the Nuggets were in such control and it played so well for like three and a half quarters. And then you look up and it's like, oh, it's like a two possession game and they're playing Kawhi Leonard. Like they probably are still going to lose this. <laughs> Which is so often, I think, how these types of series tend to go. Um, and I I don't think that should in any way diminish what the Nuggets have done because I nope. think they deserve a lot of credit for how well they've played. It's crazy how far their defense has come since the first round. A ton of that has to do with getting Grant back in the starting lineup and moving Porter to the bench and obviously getting Gary Harris back has just completely transformed this team. And, you know, he looked great defensively from the start after coming back, but to see him actually start to get comfortable at the offensive end as well, um, not just knocking down shots, but actually like making plays, putting the ball on the floor. He had six assists in this game. So that was really nice to see. And if they can keep getting solid production out of him, then I think that they can steal another game in this series for sure. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. Let's move over to the other Western Conference series, Lakers and Rockets, a really fascinating stylistic matchup. The Rockets come out and win game one in pretty convincing fashion. And then the Lakers come back and get out to a massive lead in game two. The Rockets come all the way back to take the lead. And then I thought LeBron James just basically completely took over that game in the fourth quarter and evens it up for the Lakers. Cash, what are your uh, big takeaways from this series so far? Um, if uh, Russell Westbrook's going to be outplayed by Rajon Rondo, the Rockets are in trouble. Um, listen, I mean, I think you were saying, you know, from the OKC series that you actually thought the Rockets had a better chance to to win that series without Russ, and I 
pretty sure you feel the same way about this series. And it honestly looks that way. Like, it's strange because we had gotten to a point with Westbrook this season where, you know, it wasn't like an aberration. It was like three straight months, essentially, where he got back to being old Russ and rampaging the rim and not settling for jumpers anymore. And and the whole, like, settling for jumpers phrase is used too often when it's actually a good shot by these, like, anti-analytics people. They're like, oh, I shouldn't settle for a jumper. With, with Russ, it's settling for a jumper because he's a terrible, like, historically bad jump shooter, especially from three. So with him, it is settling, and it's terrible, and it mucks up the Rockets' otherwise excellent offense. And he's also just, like, making terrible decisions with the ball in his hands. It's, it's crazy to me sometimes to watch Russ because – this is a guy who's been in the NBA so long, an established star that, you know, has played this way his entire career. And yet, even at his age, with his experience, it still feels like he doesn't even know how to harness his own powers. You know, like that's one of the things that most young stars learn over time. It's like, what's the right speed to play at? How do I slow the game down? How do I kind of harness this power I have? And Russ's like speed and relentlessness is obviously his power. And yet here we are in year, I don't know, what is it, 12 of his career? And like he still doesn't know how to harness it. And you saw it in game two. There were so many moments where he'd like either collect a defensive rebound or get an outlet pass on like a fast break opportunity. Or sometimes like the Rockets wouldn't even have numbers and he would just try to force the issue. And then you could see he'd get in the paint and literally have like no, he'd have no options and like no real idea of what he was going to do. And he would try to improvise something and it would end in a turnover or a bad brick. And the Lakers are coming back the other way. And it's just, yeah, it's it's frustrating to watch because you know he's better than that. And I know you made a good point off air uh, when we were texting about this series about, you know, the Lakers stashing AD on him and kind of taking the rim away from him. And then maybe, and maybe that's thrown him out of sorts because if you take the rim away from him, you know, really his options are settled for a jump shot that's almost surely not going in or move the ball. And I think maybe that's it. Maybe it's as simple as he just needs to move the ball more in those, in those situations. But yeah, I think, I think it's going to be tough for the Rockets to have a chance in this series. If Russ plays anywhere near as bad as he has so far. And um, you know, I, I made the joke about Rondo. Uh, look, he, he was solid in game two, man. He was not good at all in game one. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Vogel went back to him for 28 minutes in game two is concerning in its own right, because I don't think Rondo will be that good the whole series, but right. to his credit, John Rondo played a really solid game too he wasn't the most efficient in terms of his individual offense but I think he had nine assists and one turnover I think he was really good defensively the the Lakers varied their defenses a lot they went with like very like a lot of different zones at some points it was almost like Rondo was playing like a rover role but anytime they went into a zone you could tell even at times when LeBron was on the court with Rondo Rajon was the one that seemed to be like the anchor of that defense you could see him communicating and like uh marshalling guys of where to go and I roll my eyes a lot of times when I hear the Lakers talk about or like Vogel or LeBron talk about how they need Rondo on the floor for his IQ. And he, and he did, you know, at one point, this guy was like top of the line when it came to basketball IQ. I roll my eyes when I hear it now, but then you watch a game like that when he really is quarterbacking these effective Lakers zones and you think, you know, like, well, I mean, we're not there. Maybe maybe there is still something to it that if you can get a game like that out of him, it does show um, how valuable that overall basketball IQ still is. Yeah, and maybe like having him guard areas on the floor rather than players is actually the best way to get the most out of him at the defensive end, as opposed to just like staying in front of guys, which he doesn't do a great job of at this point. To to the Westbrook point, I want to be clear. I did not say that the Rockets have a better chance of winning this series without him, just that I'm not sure that he moves the needle for them as much as it might seem on paper. And obviously, 
if he was going to keep playing the way that he played in game two, then yes, 100%, they have a better chance to win this series without him. But I also think that in order to win this series, they need him and, and they just need him to be playing way better. And one thing they need to figure out is like, how can they get the most out of him in the half court? Because in the half court, like I said, and it's not like he hasn't seen this before. Like teams have been stashing their big guys on him a lot this season. And one of those games was against the Lakers when AD was, you know, spending a lot of time guarding him and Westbrook still managed to have a really good game by using the runway that AD was giving him to get to the rim and finish around him. He also, you know, was able to hit a bunch of mid-range jumpers in that game, which he actually did a fair amount of in game one, but obviously wasn't able to do in game two. But again, like to me, it just all comes down to the fact that he has never figured out really how to play off of the ball. And when the ball isn't in his hands, like I think a perfect example of this actually came in game one to me when Harden was handling and the Lakers kind of did the thing where they allowed Harden to like get into the middle of the floor, but they had help waiting for him at the rim. And Anthony Davis is like zoning up the weak side. So he's ostensibly guarding Russ on the wing and Daniel House in the corner. And he's kind of cheating toward the corner because he knows that Harden isn't really going to want to make that pass. Not only because it's a more difficult to pass to make to throw that pass to the wing, but because it's Westbrook standing there and he's not a threat. And AD, you know, cheating toward the corner just easily picks off the Harden pass that inevitably goes there. I think, you know, what if Westbrook, when he sees that, just cuts in from the wing and then AD has to commit to stopping that cut. Otherwise, Westbrook's just going to have like an easy layup or dunk. And that leaves the corner open. Or he decides to sit on the corner and Westbrook actually gets that bucket. Like stuff like that, you just don't see him... He does it sometimes, but a lot of the time he's just like not heady enough when he's playing off the ball. And I think that causes a lot of problems for the Rockets offense. And I agree, they need him to do a lot more if they want to have a hope of winning this series. But I also think, you know, you mentioned Rondo. Markeith Morris goes four for four from three-point range in this game. Kuzma was six of seven from the floor. I think if they're if the Rockets are looking for positive signs and signs that, you know, what the Lakers did in that game isn't particularly sustainable how well the Lakers role players played is where I would be looking. Cause I don't think that the Lakers can really rely on that kind of performance again. And like the, another thing, so the Rockets were plus 18 with PJ Tucker on the floor in 34 minutes and minus 26 in 14 minutes with him on the bench. Like they really, all, all the Rockets starters, I think, except for Westbrook, were on the positive side of the ledger in that game. Uh, and it was really lost in like the Westbrook on Harden off minutes um, and the Rockets bench minutes in general. Like Austin Rivers, God bless him, was somehow a minus 18 in six minutes. <laughs> and I just I don't necessarily see that repeating. So I think the fact that for the most part, you know, aside from Westbrook, who, as you pointed out, was a disaster, the Rockets starters actually managed to outplay the Lakers starters on the whole. So that game like didn't make me feel in any way like this isn't going to be a long series. Like I said at the start, like I do have the Lakers ultimately coming out of this series, but I, I expect it to be a grind for sure. Yeah. I mean, I had Lakers in five and I already um, feel like I feel good about picking the Lakers. I don't feel good about picking a quick series because uh, yeah, I'd agree with the fact that a, I mean the way they got kind of manhandled in game one and then the fact that even in game two, when they were playing so well in the first half, built up a 20-point lead, and then at one point in the third quarter, they're down. 
you know, you mentioned how well the role players played, like considering how many things went right for the Lakers in this game, you know, 28 good minutes from Rajon Rondo to not kind of cruise to victory um, to me was actually kind of concerning. And if I'm the Rockets right now through two games, you know, you're not happy with the way game two went, but I think you're pretty pleased with like how the series is shaking out overall. And and I think you have to like your chances so far. Yeah. And, and like, you know, the thing with the Lakers, so they, we talked about 80 at the five and how that's going to be a really important thing for the Lakers in this series. And so much of that is contingent, you know, not just on AD, but on the guys who fill out that lineup around him and LeBron. And they basically, I mean, they did not play Dwight Howard in game two. JaVale McGee played eight minutes and left with an injury of some sort, I believe. And the rest of the game is basically playing, you know, I'm putting in air quotes, like them playing small because Davis is the size of a lot of centers around the league and certainly still much bigger than anybody on the Rockets front line. But they play smaller. And honestly, like those lineups were not good in game one. And they worked really well in game two because guys like Markeith Morris and Kyle Kuzma played so well and were able to fill out that lineup really effectively. But in game one, Kuzma was awful. Um, And most games this playoffs, Markeith Morris has given them nothing. And again, I don't know if they can rely on Rajon Rondo giving them that kind of production again. So this is a little bit my concern with the Lakers is like, yes, I think AD playing the five, the Lakers offense operating in a bit more space is the right approach. But at the same time, I don't know if they can rely on like their guards and wings to have the kind of performances they had in this game moving forward. And, you know, that's ultimately what is going to make or break those lineups. Um, But just one more point I'll make to kind of cap this off. I think one thing the Lakers have to realize, and I thought they did do a good job of recognizing in game two is the way to beat this Rockets defense is not with strength. It's with speed. And in game one, I thought they tried to beat this Rockets defense with strength. Like they repeatedly were just posting Anthony Davis on PJ Tucker. And like, I'm not saying that those plays can't be effective, especially with some of the shot making we've seen from Davis in this series. But I ultimately think that's playing into the Rockets hands. Like they are going to live all day with Anthony Davis posting up PJ Tucker. And I think what they need to do more of and what they did do more of in game two is like Anthony Davis slipping screens, like those quick slips roll into the rim, having LeBron initiate from the top and finding ways to space out the floor for him, you know, and that's not always just going to be with like stationing four shooters around him. It's a lot of times going to be like having off ball motion and sort of decoy actions that engage defenders so that they can't help on LeBron when he gets rolling downhill. But the really important thing, for me, for the Lakers in this game was they went, I think, 23 for 28 at the rim. And just getting there uh, is going to be the most important thing for them because the Rockets like don't have a ton of rim protection, but they do do a pretty good job on the whole of keeping guys away from the basket so that they don't necessarily have to rely on their rim protection in order to stop teams. And the Lakers busted that in this game. Um, and they also just got out a ton in transition. And the Rockets' transition defense isn't all that great. Uh, Westbrook's turnovers certainly didn't help that. And I think, you know, if the Rockets want to win the series, they got to force the Lakers to play in the half court more than they did in game two. It always amazes me when good teams that generally are well-prepared 
like open a series doing things like you can't you just don't understand like a perfect example is as you mentioned the lakers starting this series by just repeatedly trying to attack um the rockets from a strength perspective as if they haven't watched the rockets play the last x number of months like this is some this isn't even a new thing that you can talk about just this season like the rockets playing small but not playing weak like We've talked about this for a couple of seasons now. Like teams definitely know it, players know it, coaches know it. That you can't just pick on the Rockets from like a strength perspective because even though they're small in stature, like most of those guys are pretty solid, at least one-on-one defenders who are strong, like good bases. And yet there were the Lakers, like this great team with you know one of the two best players of all time and two superstars, and you know have. Vocals had a good season. They're generally well coached. Like what? It just boggles my mind sometimes that a team like that, and they're not the only team guilty of it, could just come into a series with that being one of the game plans. Like what? And I don't know. Maybe there's a good way to transition to Raptor Celtics because you know, very similar to the way whether it was Pascal Siakam or other guys, the way the Raptors like tried to post Marcus Smart so often through the first two games and 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 through the first five games, really. Like I just I don't understand sometimes how these good, well coached, well prepared teams seem to have a game plan that includes trying something that even we could tell them is most likely not going to work. Yeah, it's tough to say. I think there's maybe just like a little bit more to it than that. And I I think sometimes maybe you just got to see, right? And LeBron has referred a lot to these feel-out games where you're just sort of towing the ground, trying to find a soft spot. And... I don't think it's like the worst idea in the world to sort of try something and see if you can force an adjustment from the opposing team. If you can create an advantage out of a situation when it doesn't seem necessarily like you have one, there's a certain method to that madness, I'll say. Um, Maybe there's something to be said for just like sticking with that for too long and not being quick enough to go away from it. And like even in that game one, when I thought Tucker made everything really difficult for Davis in the post, like AD was hitting a lot of tough turnaround jumpers. And obviously that wasn't enough to make the Rockets adjust because they liked the shots they were forcing AD to take. So it's like they're not going to send a double team when Tucker has AD in the post. And for the Raptors, Siakam couldn't get anything going against Smart in the post. And the Celtics realized right away that they weren't going to have to send help. Um, Why don't we fully transition over to Celtics Raptors? The Raptors, in really dramatic fashion, obviously, win game three, like we talked about, and then they come out and play, I thought, a very solid, especially defensively, game four, and manage to even up the series. But then the Celtics come out in game five and just lay the smack down from the opening jump, hold the Raptors to 11 points in the first quarter, and cruise to a game five victory to put Toronto on the brink of elimination. Big takeaways from that game, Cash. Did you think that was more a Raptors loss or a Celtics win? Oh, I mean, that's a tough one. Um, oh, look, I'll credit the Celtics. I think it's the playoffs. If you if you can dominate a team as good as the Raptors, like the way the Celtics did, I think you've got to give them their flowers and you know acknowledge that they were by far the better team. I don't want to take anything away from them, but you know, it, it's hard not to look at that game and say that that was not the Raptors we've become accustomed to. Like, yeah, did the Celtics play a hand in that? Absolutely. Um, defensively, that first quarter was really off. Like the Raptors missed some like easy shots, but the Celtics defense did a tremendous job of just not really allowing anything easy. They they found a way, uh, whether it was by clogging the paint or Tice just moving his feet extremely well on switches. They found a way to essentially take everything away from Kyle Lowry and Fred VanVleet. Those guys couldn't get anything going in that first quarter. 
they couldn't get anything going from teammates. Like it just seemed like there weren't any options there. And um, you cut off the head of the snake for the Raptors, especially when Pascal Siakam isn't playing that well offensively right now. And all of a sudden you've held them to 11 points in the quarter and the game's pretty much all but over already. So yeah, I mean, I think credit the Celtics for sure. But again, there was just something very jarringly out of character about the way the Raptors performed in this game. Like even they're like throwing the ball away off inbounds, you know, after giving up a bucket down 20 in the second quarter. And I think that might've actually been Lowry who did that or Lowry was involved in the play. So like, it was just top to bottom. I don't really think any of them played well. I think they looked awkwardly sluggish. I mean, I know a lot of people were pointing out the fact that the starters, it's probably because the starters retired. They've been playing such heavy minutes. Lowry played 90 minutes between games three and four. Fair enough, but that doesn't really explain why Norman Powell continues to crap the bed. You know, like he's just having a terrible series. But if if all it was was fatigue within the starters, like that doesn't really explain why every Raptor to a man was terrible on this night. And so I definitely think them just not playing, you know, up to their capabilities played a factor in this too. I think when when two teams are this evenly matched and you have a game like that, I think at least in part it has to be one of the teams also just didn't play up to their capabilities. And I think that was the case um, with this Raptors team. But again, credit the Celtics. And, you know, we're five games in. This is the second time they've blown them out in this series alone. It's the fourth time they've blown them out this season. At some point, you do have to see the trends and and realize, you know, that there's just not a great matchup for the Raptors. Uh, I still think they win game six and we're going seven. And then at that point, I mean, you could convince me of any result at that point. Um based on uh, on how I evenly matched, I still think these two teams are. But but yeah, I mean, the, the worst possible result for the Raptors in Game 5. Like, not a single thing went well for them. Yeah, that's definitely true. And to your point about the minutes loads, I kind of do think that was the case because it really didn't seem like Lowry and Van Vliet just had any burst. Like, they weren't creating any separation. They couldn't get into the paint. The Celtics were switching a ton. They had Tice switch out on the perimeter a bunch to guard Lowry and Van Vliet, and those guys couldn't take him off the bounce. So I think, you know, it's totally reasonable to think that, you know, the minutes from the last couple of games caught up to them. And to be clear, that is not an indictment of the decision to play them as many minutes as they did. They needed every second. Those were must-win games, basically, for the Raptors. (laughs) So I think just to get that series to level, even if it caught up to them in Game 5, was absolutely the right decision. And... You said you expect the Raptors to take this to seven. Oh man. Um, I definitely think it's possible because the Raptors can obviously play so much better than they did in this game, but I think it's going to take a a pretty huge effort from them in game six in order to push this thing the distance. The Celtics defenses look just so good. Even in the games that they lost, um, they lost those games, I think, because their offense couldn't get anything going. Like their defense has been unbelievable this entire series. And I think, you know, a key adjustment for them has just been after they, they really got picked apart in the paint in games two and three, um, it's been the opposite story in games four and five. Like the Celtics have dominated the paint the last two games. And the big difference uh, to me was like in game four, the Raptors were able to kind of use that game plan against the Celtics, getting in the middle, spraying the ball out to the perimeter. They hit 17 threes. And I thought in this game, the Celtics did a much better job recovering out to shooters and not over helping. Um, making sure they were still in position to like disrupt or steal kickout passes to the perimeter. But they've done a really good job of kind of jamming up the middle. They're pinching in from the wing in the pick and roll. They're pressuring the Raptors ball handlers from behind and forcing them off the three-point line and kind of sandwiching them in the middle of the floor. I thought Van Vliet 
was a bit of a mess initiating the offense in this game. And I thought the Raptors maybe asked him to do that too much. And I think part of that had to do with the fact that Smart was guarding Lowry and they wanted to essentially (laughs) divert their offense away from Marcus Smart. But I thought they could have continued to run the offense through Lowry and just done their best to screen Smart off of him as opposed to just trying to run it through Van Vliet because it just wasn't fruitful at all. And so many times Van Vliet like tried to snake that pick and roll and he wasn't creating enough space to get a jumper off. All he was really doing was allowing the on-ball defender to get back into the play. And the Celtics were just all over it. Um, They were all over everything the Raptors were trying to do. And because they were so good defensively, they were getting out and transition a lot, which is something they hadn't done really at all in their two losses. So To me, it seemed like they really got their mojo back. Uh, Huge bounce back game from Jalen Brown after what was a catastrophic game four for him. And that was really huge because he was the guy the Raps seemed to have decided they could live with taking open or semi-open threes in that game four. And that worked out to their benefit in that win. But he was great in this one. Kemba Walker got back to basically doing whatever he wanted against the Raptors defense when he had the ball in his hands after they really limited him in game four. The Celtics just got back to doing what they do. And... They have the Raptors back on their heels. And like I said, I think it's going to take a Herculean effort for the Raps to push this thing to seven. Yeah, and I think we'll see one in game six from the Raptors. I mean, they've responded to this numerous times over the last couple of years, including in their championship run. I mean, they got blown out twice by the Sixers. And I know a different team had Kawhi Leonard, but still just from an effort standpoint, uh, very rare that you see that kind of, anything close to that kind of performance in the Raptors two games in a row. I think the Herculean effort will be there. Now, I don't, think, I don't think the Celtics will fold. I think it'll be a good game, but I do think the Raps will, will come out with it. And I, I would also just remind people that, like, to remember that in general, like there, no matter what any player, team, coach, media member tells you, there is no such thing as momentum from game to game in the playoffs. Like It may feel like that for various reasons, but there is no such thing as momentum. And I think you're going to get another reminder of that in game six of this series um, based on the effort the Raptors come out with. Uh, in, in terms of the starters minutes, I agree with you that they, like the Raptors needed every second of those Lowry minutes, the Van Vliet minutes, even the Siakam minutes defensively, the OG minutes. Like they they could not afford to play those guys less. So I don't think it was you know any poor decisions on the on the part of Nick Nurse there. But I do think that's an indictment of how bad the bench has been in this series. Like the Raptors' depth was supposed to be like the you know easily the the clearest advantage. They had in the series and depth doesn't matter as much in the playoffs. But if you take two evenly matched teams and and one goes two or three players deeper or is just two or three players more capable, that should matter. And the Raptors really haven't been able to take advantage of that because the Celtics bench in a lot of ways has been better. Like Brad Watermaker has outplayed Norman Powell by far, you know, um, Time Lord has outplayed in 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 some ways Serge Ibaka. Like Serge Ibaka's numbers are fine, but defensively he has not been what we're used to. Like there, there are serious issues there. And if the Raptors aren't going to get anything from their bench and they don't have the depth advantage, then yeah, it's going to be tough to win this series. And so yeah, I, I think there, I think fatigue did play a part in it in game five uh, with the Raptors starters, but I don't think that's, you know, the fault of the Raptors coaching staff. I think that's more the fault of the Raptors bench pieces, not playing anywhere near the level they need to play for the Raptors to win this series. I agree with all that. And, you know, this was a thought I had actually while watching the Bucks heat series. And I pointed it out on Twitter, but 
it just kind of occurred to me, and it's occurred to me before, but I always seem to forget it every season. I just don't think that a team's bench success has a whole lot of carryover from the regular season to the playoffs. And I actually, like, I'm not one of these guys who thinks the depth doesn't matter at all in the playoffs, but I do think it seems to be basically a crapshoot which regular season benches continue to be successful in the playoffs because, you know, the Bucks bench for two years running now has been dominant in the regular season and completely disappeared at the most important moments. And they've gotten waxed by the Heat reserves, just like they got waxed by the Raptors reserves last year. I just don't think there's really any way to know how those bench guys are going to hold up in extended minutes against more starters than they're used to seeing. And I, I definitely think that Norm Powell can play better than he's played, uh, but his disappearance has really been a big factor in why the Raptors find themselves trailing in this series. I also think, I hate to say this, but like they really just need more from Mark Gasol at the offensive end. He's been really instrumental to what they do defensively. Like his interior defense has been huge. As much as he can look really slow and lumbering out there and like Ibaka is more mobile and should be a better option guarding their pick and roll. I think Gasol's actually been a lot more effective guarding those pick and rolls than Ibaka has. But for him to just be a complete zero offensively is tough. And I thought the Celtics, like in game four, when they were sending all that aggressive help to the middle on the pick and roll, like Gasol was kind of dissecting that by spraying passes out to the corner on the short roll. And I think the Celtics were like a little bit less aggressive about that in game five, where they were like, you know what, we're going to see if you can score on the roll, like hit a layup with a later contest. And maybe it's not a, like a good hard contest, but we're just going to challenge you to make the layup. And he couldn't do it. And they teased it. It's like they teased him. They teased him enough to to let him know the shot was there because they wanted him to take it. But yeah, to your point, the help still came. It was just late and it seemed to flummox him every time. Yeah. And so it's like if he's, you know, when when that help and honestly, I don't like, you know, when that help arrives early, which is technically what it is supposed to do, it makes his decision a lot easier. Yeah, and if ball. you can if you can put him in a position where he has to think, oh, okay, like I don't necessarily have an obvious pass to make here. Should I try and go score? Uh, you can see the gears turning in his head and he knows he's not shooting the ball well right now. He knows he's not finishing all that well around the basket. And, you know, if they can force him to try and be more of a scorer, I think that's advantage Celtics. And we'll see if the Raptors can find an adjustment to that in game six and whether that adjustment is just Mark finds the scoring touch. I'm not sure. It might just be that the Raptors decide they want to play small and spend more minutes with Siakam at the five, maybe even OG at the five and play the Celtics that way. I mean, that might be a good approach for them as well, at least offensively. I think that might be a way to get their offense out of mud. Whether that compromises their defense too badly for them to actually win is another matter. Yeah. I mean, I'd I'd like to see a wrap small lineup for some stretch of extended minutes here, but you know, it might be their last game of the season. So Tough to really know where they're going to go. And it's also tough to, like, it, it's very easy to say, like, they should, you should try a bunch of new things when you're running out of options and your season's on the line. But the counter to that is, well, your season's on the line. And do you really want to, even for a team that does vary their coverages on both ends of the floor, like, so it's still like, do you really want to deviate that much from the plan in a must-win game instead of going with something that you trust a little more? So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough conundrum. But, you know, that's what happens when you lay an egg in – a tie-breaking game five and now face elimination. Yeah. 
All right, let's finish out here with just a few minutes on Bucks Heat. Like I said off the top, uh, we'll probably have more Bucks talk coming in the next few days, and we've talked a lot about the series already, but we should probably give Chris Middleton his flowers because he played a spectacular Game 4 to keep Milwaukee's season alive after Giannis went down 11 minutes into the game, re-spraining his right ankle, and I just... He's officially listed as questionable for Game 5. I think... After injuring that ankle twice in two games, I honestly just think it would be malpractice to have him go back out there. Like, I think... And he was in tears. The pain was so bad. He was literally in tears. And he yeah. was in a walking boot less than 48 hours ago. I just, how is he... Like, I, I completely respect and admire the fact that he wants to play and is going to try to play. Amazing. But he shouldn't play. I mean, I... It's it's weird to say that because we're not doctors. We're not on the Bucks medical stuff. Like, we don't know what they know and what they see, but... It's just so hard to envision him playing as a good idea for him. Yeah, I just, I think you probably start to risk doing serious permanent damage if you're going out there on a twice sprained ankle. And obviously Giannis, like we know his nature, how competitive he is, like he is going to want to play. And if he thinks he's at all able, then he's going to push to play. Uh, I I just don't particularly think that he should. Um, Again, Middleton played his best game of the playoffs, frankly, to almost single-handedly keep Milwaukee's season alive. I actually thought Bledsoe, despite the fact that I think he went 0 for 6 from 3, played a really good game as well, did a good job getting downhill and getting to the rim, played some really good defense on Jimmy Butler. The Heat offense, I mean, what were they, up 8? Like, in you know, midway through the fourth quarter and then just stopped scoring the ball. Weren't really running their sets with a lot of juice. Kind of ground down into a lot of isolation play. And got maybe distracted or passive or started looking ahead to the next series, whatever it was, um, their offense fell apart and the Bucks took advantage and extended the series. So I don't know if it's going to go beyond game five, but credit to the Bucks for not folding. I guess, you know, whether that's the kind of thing that actually comes back to bite the heat, we'll have to wait and see. I don't really anticipate, especially if Giannis isn't playing this series going beyond tonight, but I mean, we'll have a chance to uh, kind of assess the wreckage one way or another in the coming days. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the Bledsoe point's a good one because I do think him his ability to get into the paint and to the rim is so crucial for the Bucks in general, but especially if Giannis isn't going to be there. You know, I, I mentioned, I think, our last pod or two pods ago that Bledsoe missing in game one hurt them because when they walled when the heat walled off the paint from Giannis, like they the Bucks were literally left with zero players capable of breaking down that defense. And whether Giannis is in or out, I think um Bledsoe's jumper probably will continue to fail him. But if he can get into the paint and collapse that Bucks de- uh the heat defense a little bit, you know, it's just another option for Milwaukee and and they need it uh, to create some some looks for other guys if Giannis isn't gonna play. But yeah. on the whole, without Giannis, I mean I, I would probably lean towards a heat blowout tonight. <laughs> like I, I just, you know, I think they know they missed an opportunity. They'll, they're the better team without Giannis, especially. They're well, like a Spolstra coach team with Jimmy Butler on it. Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem like the type of team that would implode after that game four collapse. They seem more like the type of team that will kind of grab the game by the throat. And if Giannis isn't in the lineup, I think this will be a blowout. I don't necessarily think it'll be a blowout, but I do think, you know, one thing that maybe happens like the, the heat game plan is geared, you know, defensively, especially is like just geared toward 
stopping Giannis. So then when Giannis goes out of the game, it's like they kind of have to reinvent their defensive game plan on the fly. And I think they'll be a lot more prepared going into this game to play against a, a, a Giannis-less Bucks team. So yeah, I don't have a ton of hope in, in the Bucks extending it. Really disappointing, obviously, to see Giannis go down the way that he did because he came out playing with so much fire and just like really playing like some refuse to lose basketball, just absolutely powering his way to the rim and like snarling and didn't look at all like a defeated guy. Uh, looked like a guy who was ready to try and win four straight games and scored, I think, 19 points in 11 minutes before getting injured, which, you know, if he had played a full buttonholzer approved minutes load, might have gotten to 30 points. Who knows? Um, but just like for him to go down in that spot, it was just really gutting to see. And, you know, if like we assume he's not going to make it back, then just like what a brutal way for his season to end. His, yeah. his, presumably his MVP season to end. Yeah. I know we don't have much time, but I do want to end then on ask by asking you, have we seen Giannis in a Bucks uniform for the last time? No, I agree. And, and again, we'll we'll have. I think we'll we'll revisit yeah. this if or when the Bucks lose. But yeah, they've got I, one season left of them. It would be completely insane for them to trade him with one year left on his yep. contract. Like that just Agreed. is not done. Like players of his caliber. I mean, sure, it's like tier two stars like a Jimmy Butler or a Paul George or a Demarcus Cousins, whoever it is, like. Those guys with one year left on their deals, yeah, they they say that they're not going to resign. You trade them and get what you can for them while you can. Giannis is like in the, I know he he doesn't have the accomplishments yet, at least not on a team level, but like he is in the LeBron and Durant stratosphere of star. And Kawhi Leonard got traded with one year on his deal, but there were a lot of mitigating were, circumstances. Yeah, yeah, they were, yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I, I and like, I know you don't. You do not trade players of Giannis's no. caliber if yeah. you still have them under contract. You just don't because yeah. he alone gives you a championship ceiling. Yeah, and you ride that out and see if you can win one with him. Yeah, flags so, fly forever. Yeah, so no, I don't think we've seen the last of him in a Bucks uniform. But we'll get into it more when we reconvene <laughs> to uh, eulogize this Bucks season, which might be as soon as tomorrow. Yeah, but for now, let's put a bow on this one. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon, Pound the Rock. Mm-hmm.